Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. This week's guest is Bruno Paul Stenson. Bruno Paul Stenson is an historian and musicologist, and he is a specialist on the social history of New France. He's an educator at the Chateau de Ramsay, a museum and historic site in Montreal. And what is very cool is that in collaboration with UNESCO, a team of experts actually selected the Chateau de Ramsay as one of the thousand and one historic sites you must see before you die, which is awesome. Bruno, thank you very much for joining the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Oh, don't thank me yet. I haven't said <laughs> I appreciate that. So, Bruno, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, there's really not much to tell. That's average height, left-handed. <laughs> Very proud to be so. There you go. So where did you grow up then? Uh, I grew up in um, a suburb of Montreal called Saint-Laurent. And uh, the, the specific neighborhood that I grew up in was built in 1942 to house workers from the local airplane manufacturing plant, which itself was built for the Canadian war effort in oh, wow. World War II. Now, th there were many such neighborhoods all across the country, uh, all built for the same reason. And in my neighborhood, the airplane plant and the residential area were to be bulldozed after the war. Wow. There ended up being so many returning veterans needing housing including many who had gotten married and even had kids uh, who were born in Europe, that the Canadian government took over the neighborhood, all of the houses abandoned by the workers who had been on the evening and night shift and who no longer had jobs, the uh, air plant manufacturing uh, concern having gone from military to civil aviation. This ended up uh, freeing up a bunch of houses for the returning vets. So the houses were kept, occupied by returning vets. Many of them got jobs working at the uh, civil aviation plant in the neighborhood. And that plant became world famous for building the best known water bomber used to fight forest fires. Oh, wow. The Air Seal 215. Very cool. So I grew up in a neighborhood of families headed by men who had either built airplanes for the war, or who had gone overseas to fight in the war. So I was surrounded by history from day one and surrounded by music. My mother played uh, piano. She could read music. My father couldn't even tell if the sheet music was upside down or not, <laughs> but he could play accordion and harmonica by ear. That's awesome. So I was surrounded by music from day one. Now, how did you determine then that you were going to take this really unique background and turn it into a career in history and music? Oh, aren't you nice thinking I decided to <laughs> I fell into both. I went to university to get a bachelor's degree in psychology and education, then took a gap year to explore which psychological belly button I would probe for a master's degree and realized I'd lost all respect for the field. Wow. Meanwhile... I'd started doing children's music in school at the request of a friend. That struck me as fairly easy money 
And to distinguish myself from everybody else who was strumming a guitar and kicking at a tambourine, I decided to expand the small collection of musical instruments that I already had and present the instruments and their backgrounds to my young audience. Being able to do this in both English and French, which is my mother tongue, I became a big hit in schools, community centers, daycare centers, and I became a musicologist through having to know so much about the instruments I was demonstrating. Now, a musicologist is a person who knows aspects of music, such as the history of music, the geography of music, the sociology of music, any aspect other than actually playing the instruments. <laughs> I do play the instruments as well, 250 or so and counting. As for being a historian, I stumbled into that as well. When I became a volunteer guide at the Chateau Ramsay Museum, uh, History Museum in Old Montreal, that was more than 22 years ago. I went back to university shortly after starting at the Chateau Ramsay. I ended up earning both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in history entirely for fun, which gets me the strangest <laughs> looks from people. I bet it does. And I've been a freelance historian ever since, giving lectures in community centers, seniors' residences and such. And now here I am on your podcast. There we go. Now you're doing the French-Canadian Legacy podcast. That's awesome. So I'd like to transition a little bit into the story of New France. Maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about some of the uh, indigenous people who inhabited what would become New France. Well, of the estimated 10 million indigenous people living north of Mexico when colonization began, some 250,000 to 2.5 million lived in what is now Canada. The majority of them living in what is now central and eastern Canada. Technologically, they were living in their Stone Age. No knowledge of how to make glass, no metallurgical skills other than uh, making things out of copper, which is a very soft metal easily fashioned into objects by heating it and or smacking it with a rock. They never invented the wheel. Consequently, they had no land vehicles and no roads. But what they lacked in technology they made up for spiritually and in politics. In politics, they were well ahead of the Europeans in terms of people's participation in government. Both the Wendat, the better known as the Huron, and the Iroquois set up confederacies before any similar notion was dreamed up by Europeans. Now, that's super interesting. And something you don't actually a story you don't hear very often here in the United States. Now, when did New uh, France decide it was going to join the party? and want to make colonies in, in North America? Well, the French were rather late in coming to the colonizing party. The Spanish and the Portuguese were at it first, followed by the Dutch, the Russians, and famously, the English. Giovanni Caboto, that's John Cabot to you, hmm. explored what is now eastern Canada in 1498, discovering and claiming the Isle of Newfoundland for the King of England. Jacques Cartier, the first of the French explorers, only arrived in 1534, wow. 36 years after Caboto. He explored the same area as Caboto, and he claimed the Isle of Newfoundland for the King of France. Cartier uh, found nothing that the king had sent him to find, mainly the route to the Indies, yeah. which is what the Europeans called Asia at the time. But he did find indigenous peoples waving furs at him from the shore, which tells us that these people had seen Europeans before and that they knew they could trade furs for glass and metal objects, which they couldn't make. The, the king had sent Cartier 
back the next year, 1535. And this Cartier overwintered in the New World and explored the St. Lawrence right up to the island of Montreal. But again, he found nothing of interest other than first. He was sent one last time in 1542, and this time he found a mother load of gold and pre-cut diamonds. Sadly, the gold turned out to be pyrite, oh, gold, and the pre-cut diamonds, Herkimer quartz. Yeah. Long story short, Cartier found nothing. Yeah. <laughs> now, this was followed by a series of attempts by French Protestants, the Huguenots, to establish fur trade settlements, but they all failed, simply because these propositions were way too expensive for private businesses. To undertake successfully. It's the Huguenot Pierre du Gardemont who sent Samuel de Champlain to found Quebec in 1608. The proper story of New France begins. And was the motivation then for this colony in New France the, the furs that we mentioned before? Is that is that why they were there? Is that why this place existed? That's a, a good question. It, it wasn't the route to the Indies. It had no natural resources worth mentioning except fish and furs. Europeans, being good Catholics, did not eat meat on the equivalent of five months of days every year. Wow. So if you took all of the meatless days, put them in a row, starting on January 1st, they couldn't eat meat until June 1st. Wow. But of course, these days were spread out through sure. the year. The approved alternative to meat was fish, and they proceeded to fish out their rivers and coasts. It's the Basque who stumbled onto the Grand Banks off of Newfoundland, where there was fish plenty, And this, over time, became a large-scale fishery. So the Europeans, including the French, were here for fish. But also, the beaver exists in Europe, but by the time the Europeans started exploring the New World, there were only isolated pockets of beaver left in Scandinavia. In the New World, there were beavers hiding behind every tree. <laughs> and the felt they could make with beaver fur was the most sought after for being warm and water-repellent and excellent material for making hats. So both the French and the English built colonies north of Mexico and entered the fur trade with the native population. That's awesome. Now, when we talk about New France, geographically, what areas of today, what is today the United States and Canada specifically are we talking about? Okay. The English territory included Labrador, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, all in present-day Canada, and, of course, what we call the original 13 colonies along the eastern seaboard of present-day United States. The French had everything else That's except crazy. Alaska, which was Russian, Florida, New Mexico, and New Spain, which were all Spanish. And uh, there was some little Dutch territory that ended up being incorporated into the English colonies more or less successfully. You know, it became someplace called New something, New, New, New York. <laughs> you may have heard of it. Sure. We don't like to admit that from New England, though, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> now, who was it that came to New France? Are we talking mostly men? Was it families, lower class, upper class? Who was it that made that journey over? 
exclusively men at the beginning. Okay, so the, there's a wonderful scene in uh, Brian Moore's novel Black Robe, the story of the Jesuits in New France. The scene was even kept in the film adaptation of the novel. We see Samuel de Chablais, founder of Quebec, the first settlement permanently inhabited by the French in the New World, pacing back and forth in his building on the top of the cliff where Quebec was located. He looks out the window to the lower part of the settlement, and we see a couple of guys building a house. One of them speaks of the colonists, and the other says, Colonists? What colonists? Where are the women? Where are the children? The Dutch have colonists. The English have colonists. What do we have? Fur traders and priests. So for roughly the first three quarters of a century, that was pretty much it. Fur traders and priests. And, of course, all of the men. Initially, the king of France wanted to increase the population of New France, but without depleting the population of France itself. Now, he thought this could be accomplished by the fur traders making babies with the indigenous women. But one wee detail escaped him. The fur traders were making babies with the indigenous women, sure enough, in the indigenous villages, giving the impression that the babies would be raised as French Catholics. But the fur traders were coming back to Montreal alone. Wow. Leaving the babies to be raised without the French language or Catholic religion. It's Louis XIII's prime minister. Cardinal Richelieu, who came up with the solution to this problem. Les filles du roi, king's girls. These were orphans from the Paris area in exchange for the king paying their dowry, transportation to the New World, and food and lodging with the nuns upon their arrival in the New World. The girls would marry horny, drooling settlers they had never met before coming to New France. Everybody who can trace their ancestry to New France today has at least one fille roi in their family tree. There's a document that was prepared in 1717 for the French minister in charge of the colonies, which begins with this sentence. Le commerce du castor est presque l'unique objet de la colonie française du Canada. The beaver trade is almost the only goal of the French colony of Canada. Wow. With the exception of the governing and religious elite, the population of New France was largely what we would today call lower class and working class. Men who worked as common laborers in the fur trade and its supporting industries, and lots of self-sufficient farmers whose harvests were too small for them to become commercial concern. All of these people put together total about 10,000 who wow. have migrated from France to New France. The motive for the women, the 1100 or so filles du roi, was a chance of having a better life. Right up to the beginning of the 20th century, orphans were considered to be defective and worse for girls than the late 17th century when the filles du roi came over here. An orphan girl would have nothing to contribute to her own dowry, making her a very poor choice for a wife. As for the men, the motive was work. The biggest group was the 3,900 engagés, hired hands. They signed three-year contracts to work in the fur trade, so they were guaranteed a job for three years and possibly more if they renewed their contract. Unfortunately, once they were here, the conditions turned out to be far worse than they expected. The weather, the bugs, 
14-hour days paddling in the to and from the indigenous communities to trade. Few fur traders lasted more than a year. They won't have earned enough to pay their passage back to France. So they mostly became farmers in the countryside or tradesmen in the city. The next biggest group were the 3,500 soldiers who were offered free land to farm in recognition for their military service. There were about 1,000 prisoners sent oh, to wow. France. Welcome to Van Diemen's Land West. <laughs> And only about 500 came as free men, which is to say men who came to New France to start a new life without contractual obligations to the fur trade or the military. Now, this is interesting. Now, we've talked a bit about Quebec City. We mentioned that. Uh, what were the other, you know, I guess, municipalities? Could we call them that in, in early New France, Canada? Asking about municipalities in New France suggests there were either a lot or there might have been minor metropolitan areas as well. Uh, well, as it turns out, there were only three cities in the main New France colony, the one called Canada, along the St. Lawrence River. There was Quebec, founded in 1608, Trois-Rivières, which means three rivers, founded in 1634, and Montréal, Montreal, founded in 1642. And even then, Trois-Rivières is included almost by charity. <laughs> in 1685, there was a grand total of 25 houses in Trois-Rivières, 18 of which doubled as taverns. That's awesome. You see, Trois-Rivières was a sort of truck stop for people going from Montreal to Quebec or vice versa. It's not that there were a lot of drinkers in Trois-Rivières. <laughs> uh, by the time the British took over, there were only 800 people living in Trois-Rivières. Meanwhile, there were approximately 6,000 in Montreal and about 8,000 in the largest city, which was Quebec. Now, these three cities accounted for only 20% of the population. Everybody else lived in the countryside for a grand total under 75,000 by the time the British took over in the early 1760s. Which is, by comparison, incredibly small compared to the British population. Yes. Absolutely. Now... In the United States, we're pretty familiar with the English colonial model of, you know, you get your appointed colonial governor and then you get your citizen assembly or legislature that, you know, meet in the colony's capital and in some manner together they govern the colony. Now, how was the, the places that you mentioned in New France governed? The governance of New England was patterned after the governance of England itself, a constitutional monarchy since the late 17th century. The governance of New France was also patterned after the governance of its mother country, but in this case, it's an absolute monarchy. There was an appointed governor for the entire territory of New France, which was subdivided into Acadie, or Acadia, and three administrative territories within Canada, each one centered on one of those cities I mentioned. Each of these had its own governor. The governor of New France headed a council that was composed of the governor, the étendant, or intendant, who was responsible for justice and military, the bishop, the captain of the militia, and the five counselors. Nobody's getting elected to anything. <laughs> we mentioned Acadia. We've, we've talked a little bit about that on our podcast. We mentioned briefly Louisiana in our podcast. Um, do these places also have, I don't know, I guess something we could call, something resembling cities? The capital of, of Canada 
which was along the uh, the St. Lawrence River, was Quebec, and this was for New France a very large city. Second in size was Montreal. Once you get out of Canada, the colony along the St. Lawrence River, you're looking at two rather odd ducks. Louisiana was not an inhabited territory, so it didn't have a capital. Well, I suppose the fort at Nouvelle Orleans, New Orleans for you, sure. uh, could be thought of as such, but that would be pushing things just a wee bit. <laughs> uh, New Orleans was set up at the mouth of the Mississippi to keep enemies from coming into New France from the southern entrance. And that's it. Then we have Acadie in what is now the Maritime in eastern Canada. Acadie had no cities, but unlike Canada, the colony along the St. Lawrence, it had many villages. Gotcha. It was a farming community. It was a farming colony. And it had capitals. Yes, that's capital <laughs> England. Paul Royal, or Port Royal, was the capital. But during the Acadian Civil War, there was Fall Saint Marie, which was added as a capital as two governors fought each other over control of the largely ignored farming colony of Acadie. That's pretty interesting. I we had heard that story. Yeah, I like that. Um, a story that we have been told a couple different times on previous podcasts is that uh, the English Protestants that were in New England at the time basically assumed that every French Canadian also had some type of indigenous ancestry. How actually common were the relationships between French and the indigenous people? Uh Ultimately, Canada, in all of its incarnations, will have dealt with the indigenous peoples through treaties, whereas the United States will have dealt with them through war. On the surface, the Canadian way seems kinder, more honest, but the end result is the same. The indigenous people got screwed into poorer land. Yeah. New France had a troubled relationship with its indigenous people. As that document from 1717 stated quite clearly, the main reason for the very existence of the French colony of Canada was the fur trade with the indigenous people. However, it is important to remember that after founding Quebec in 1608, so this is the beginning of populated New France, Samuel de Chamblay supported the Wendat, or Huron, in their war against the Iroquois in 1609 only one year after founding Quebec. And this war was ended by treaty only in 1701. Wow. That's almost a century of war against the indigenous people. And even that treaty is more of a surrender of the Iroquois to the superior French fighting power than it is a gentleman's agreement between peoples. wouldn't say the French overall had a better relationship but as I mentioned earlier, in the first days of New France, the fur traders were making babies with the indigenous women. But the babies would remain with their mothers in the indigenous villages. So very few French Canadians could claim indigenous ancestry. Though a number of indigenous people could claim French ancestry. Wow. Now, I, I realize this is splitting hairs a little bit. No, that's fascinating. But, uh, and those who 
today can claim this mixed heritage and do so with political clout are the Métis, mispronounced Métis by English speakers. The Métis are part Indigenous, part European, and in Canada they're covered by laws legislating Indigenous people. Of course, during French colonial times, the European part was French. But when the British conquered New France and expanded their own exploration and fur trade into the former French colony, the practice of making babies with the Indigenous women continued, only now it was mainly Scottish men contributing the European part. I would like to transition a bit to telling the Chateau Ramsay story and the Montreal story. Um, now, when, okay. now, when was the Chateau built? Construction on the Chateau Ramsay began in 1705 or then governor of Montreal, Claude de Ramsey, now deceased. His house on the crest of the hillock upon which the city was built was made of stone. Ramsey himself wrote in a letter that it was the plus belle en Canada, the finest in all Canada, which honestly indicates to me that he didn't travel very much in Canada <laughs> and that his taste in architecture was dubious at best. <laughs> Following a fire, the building was renovated and expanded in the mid-18th century, and again at the beginning of the 20th century. And today it is, indeed, a, a rather fine-looking building. Now, what did Montreal look like at 1705? What exactly would somebody have seen when they walked through that town? Montreal was what I like to call a 5 by 20 minute city. That is to say that if you were to start at the far north end of the city, that would be about a five-minute walk. A similar walk from the far west end to the far east end would be about 20 minutes. That's the size of Montreal. Now, Montreal was a walled city, so it was a burg, and it was on a hillock, a small hill, Coteau-Saint-Louis, St. Louis Hillock. This made all the important buildings at the top of the hillock easily visible to any attacking army. After several devastating fires, increasingly severe fireproofing regulations came into being, and eventually all new construction had to be of stone, making it very expensive to build a new house in Montreal. Despite that, by the time the British arrived, more than 50% of the houses in the city were still made of wood. But you do get a sense of a small city with a fairly important elite merchants on up in a city that is not 50% made of stone, but getting there. Okay, now we talked about a little bit about what the city looked like. Now, is the population of Montreal 1705, are we talking almost exclusively uh, run, focused on that beaver trade, that fur trade that we mentioned earlier? The main business at Montreal during the French period will always be the fur trade. In fact, the Chateau Ramsay will be sold to the fur trade company by Ramsay's daughter, and they make it their North American headquarters. So that's how important the fur trade is in Montreal. There will have been about 2,200 people in Montreal at the time, composed of several religious orders, Jesuits, Sulpicians, Hospitallers, a rather large merchant class, very few in administration, and you know, your average sampling of poor people. And we've heard that 
in other locations, maybe later on in the story of New France and then Quebec, uh, the enormous role uh, that the church played in basically everything, not just the religious life, but impacted people's social lives, you know, their finances, how they handled themselves on the business end. The church basically had their hands in a whole lot of stuff. Was that the same thing in Montreal, early 1700s? Oh, you ain't just whistling Dixie. <laughs> there were two levels of authority in New France. There were the civil authorities, consisting of the governors and the seigneur, and the religious authorities, consisting of the various orders and, most importantly, the parish priests. Now, the governors dealt with broader issues in a way similar to provincial or state governments do today. Closer to the people and to their daily lives were the seigneurs. Now, these were the landlords in this uh, quasi-feudal landholding system that was the seigneurial system. Seigneur is the French word for lord, as in landlord. However, the seigneurs were often absent, either away dealing with issues of their seigneurial responsibilities or, often enough, dabbling in the fur trade. <laughs> in their absence, guess who took over? The parish priests. The priests would even judge civil court cases in the absence of the seigneurs. Wow. So this led the priests to control not only the religious aspects of people's lives, but also the social and legal aspects of their lives. The church became truly omnipresent after the British conquest, when the new English-speaking rulers needed intermediaries to address the French-speaking population. The French political and military elite had left. They were back in France. So it's the religious elite that took on this role of intermediaries. This gave them even more power than they'd had during the French regime, which was already considerable. Their power lasted until the Quiet Revolution in the 1960s, when Francophone Quebecers, that is French-speaking Quebecers, sure. with the help of the provincial government, began to assert their autonomy. Religion rapidly fell by the wayside, and today, according to a very recent survey, French-speaking Quebecers are the least religious people in Canada. Oh, wow. Many churches, nunneries, monasteries are being converted to other uses. For instance, my uh, one of my alma maters, uh, Concordia University, bought the Grey Nuns nunnery, and oh, wow. they're converting it to academic purposes. Sadly, a lot of these buildings are just being demolished, either demolished by neglect or demolished because they're in the way of newer projects. That's crazy. We referred a couple of times uh, to what you called the conquest, which I'm pretty sure is what we grew up in New England talking about the French and Indian War. And when we learn about it in school anyway, uh, at least I did, the main storyline is always Quebec City, Plains of Abraham. What did that war, that Seven Years' War, look like for the city of Montreal? In Canada, we call the French and Indian War a colonial conflict, the French and Indian War. We also are aware of the Seven Years' War. Now, my experience with American visitors at the Chateau Ramsay is that Americans think these two wars are the same. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so let's see if they are. <laughs> the Seven Years' War was ended in a treaty signed in 1763. Okay? The Seven Years' War was ended with a treaty signed in 1763. So I ask you, in what year did the Seven Years' War begin? It would have been uh, 
later than the incident that George Washington got himself into in western Pennsylvania. That's for sure. This is when I feel I need game show music. It <laughs> began in 1756. Now, in what year did the French and Indian War begin? That's what I mean. The, the conflict that Washington got into in western PA yeah. was way before that. That's what, that's what I'm 1754. So these are either two different wars, or it's an indictment of the American math education system. <laughs> the French and Indian War was a colonial squabble over possession of the Ohio Valley, indigenous territory protected by the French, hence French and Indian War. The Seven Years' War was a European conflict between England and France and their respective allies. They eventually dragged their respective colonies into the mess, making this the first true world war. It was ended in a treaty which, like all peace treaties, does two things. One, it says why we were fighting, and two, how we're going to fix the problem. Well, the business of the Ohio Valley is not mentioned at all in the treaty that ended the Seven Years' War. Therefore, the treaty ending the Seven Years' War does not end the French and Indian War, further proof that they are separate conflicts. In fact, the French and Indian War was never ended. It was simply forgotten as the British took over the whole territory anyway when they took over New France. And, and what was this like in Montreal? How was Montreal, the people of Montreal, the fur traders, impacted by this? The main impact will have been in Quebec City. Gotcha. And this is the, the famous Battle of the Plains of Abraham, sure. pitting the British troops under Major General James Wolfe against the French troops under the Marquis Louis-Joseph de Montcalm. And this was really the turning point in Canadian history as we went from French rule to British rule. Once the British had control of Quebec, which they had literally reduced to skeletons of buildings. If you're familiar with photos of bombed cities from World War II, sure. where you just see you know, skeletal remains of what used to be a city, that's what Quebec City looked like after the eight-week siege and the 20-minute battle of the Plains of Abraham. A year after that, the British arrive in Montreal, September 1760. Well, the French soldiers at Montreal had not been resupplied, reinforced, paid, or even properly fed in a year. The British took over the city without firing a single shot. Interestingly, the surrender of Quebec City was signed for France by Jean-Baptiste Nicolas Roque de Ramsey, the son of former Governor Claude de Ramsey. Oh, wow. The surrender of Montreal was signed on Notre Dame Street, right in front of the Chateau Ramsay, where Jean-Baptiste Nicolas Roque de Ramsay had grown up. Now, you'd think this would be a major change for people in Montreal. Well, not really. There was no battle here. There is no battle damage to the city. People working in the fur trade or in the military supply business, such as lumber or barrels, had either to deal with the British or leave the colony to continue dealing with the French. So there was a bit of an exodus of the business class. The governing class, of course, all had to leave, as did the military. But for just about everybody else, there really wasn't much of a change. The British needed the support of the French colonists, so they weren't about to impose any great changes on them and risk getting them upset. Sure. 
the British dealt with the French-speaking people via the clergy, who were already familiar to the people. So again, no great change. However, that will not be the case 12 years later when the Americans came calling. And what was the reaction of you know, the French-Canadian populations to when the Americans invaded in 1775? Some people in New France supported the American Revolution, if only to get rid of the British. However, once certain elements of the revolution's aims for the former French uh, colony were revealed, a majority became strongly opposed. Benjamin Franklin made it quite clear that the French-speaking Catholic territory would have to become English-speaking and Protestant once freed from the British. And the seigneurial system, where people didn't quite own their land, they owned the right to live on the land, but the land belonged to the government, that was going to be abolished by the Americans. So these points were non-starters for French Canadians, hence the want of support. But that doesn't mean that the Team USA did not attempt on a couple of different occasions uh, to bring, you know, Canada into the fold. If you talk a little bit about, well, first of all, the invasion, and then also the diplomatic efforts to try to get Canada to join. As far as the American revolutionaries were concerned, Canada was but another British colony to be free. Besides freeing it from the British, which would uh, eliminate potential recapture of the original 13 colonies coming uh, from the north, territory to the north also contained rich fur ground. The English knew full well that if they captured that territory to the north, they could expand the fur trade, thereby expanding the economy. Now, how do we get all of this territory? Newfoundland was accessible only by ship, and the British had far too powerful a navy for the revolutionaries to risk confronting it. So Newfoundland was not being considered. Same problem with Prince Edward Island. New Brunswick and Nova Scotia could be accessed either by sea, but again, the same problem, or by trudging through hundreds of miles of bush, dragging your artillery behind you. So those were eliminated as targets as well. That left the colony that the French had called Canada, the populated area along the St. Lawrence River. So that's why the American Revolution in Canada was limited to attacks on Montreal and Quebec City. The attack on Quebec City was the most idiotic (laughs) battle plan ever devised by anyone anywhere at any time and this came right after capturing montreal which the americans did very easily montreal was an american city for seven months and as had been the case when the british took montreal not a single shot was fired What can I say? We roll over easy up here. (laughs) Richard Montgomery, the leader of the American troops, wondered how this was possible until he realized that the new British governor, Guy Carleton, had fled the city, incidentally disguised as a woman, with all of its soldiers to go help defend Quebec. Carleton knew the lesson of the cliff taught by Wolfe. Lose Quebec, you risk losing the entire colony because reinforcements can no longer come through via the river. You can always come back and get Montreal later. So realizing this, Montgomery took half of his troops to Quebec to help Benedict Arnold in that idiotic battle plan. And he left Montreal in the 
incompetent hands of General David Wooster. This didn't go over well with the people of Montreal. It's puzzling to see how the Americans went through with this capture of Montreal, given how much they wanted Canada to join a revolution. They began by jailing all of the leading citizens, leaving nobody with whom to negotiate, and angering the English. They then closed all the churches, which got the French population against them. Sure. Then, to make absolutely sure that everybody hated them without reservation, when Christmas rolled around, they forbid midnight mass. That's when proper diplomats were seen to be needed and were called for, and a team of three arrived in the spring of 1776. Samuel Chase, a lawyer, Charles Carroll of Carrollton, a Catholic educated in France, and a fellow you might have heard of, if you're well-read, uh, the chap's name was Benjamin Franklin. Now, Franklin stayed in the home of a fellow named Thomas Walker, a Boston merchant running a shop in Montreal. Walker lived here with his wife, Jane Hughes. When the revolutionaries failed to capture Quebec, they ran back to Montreal, frantically waving their arms and yelling, run, run, we screwed up and the British are chasing us. <laughs> Americans and American supporters began leaving Montreal, some faster than others. One of the fastest, Thomas Walker. In fact, he left Montreal so fast that he left a few important things behind, including Mrs. Walker. <laughs> she turned to Franklin for help in escaping the city. Franklin and his two diplomat buddies wrote a note to the Continental Army asking that they escort Mrs. Walker back into the uh, loving arms <laughs> of her husband, which they did. And I can guarantee you that this part of the story is 100% accurate because the Chateau Ramsay Museum has the note on display in its permanent exhibition. That is awesome. And one story I think is kind of funny of this this attempt by these three gentlemen you mentioned uh, to kind of diplomatically achieve what they couldn't achieve militarily, which is, you know, get Canada to join, is the whole like, the, the thought process of sending a printer ahead of time. And I thought that was a yes. pretty neat story. Yes, Benjamin Franklin knew that the best way to support the people for the revolution, or to get the support from the people for the revolution, was to address them in their own language. But just so happened that while he was in London, Franklin had met a French expatriate printer named Fleury Meplet. Knowing the need for printers back home, Franklin recommended that Meplet go set up shop in Philadelphia, which he did. When the revolution started, Franklin asked Meplet to go to Montreal and print pro-revolutionary propaganda in French to entice the locals to join the revolution. Meplet, his Pockets full of continental script headed for Montreal with his printing press and all of its accessories, only to have choppy waters fling half of it in the river. Meplet hmm. set up his press in the basement of the Chateau Ramsay and proceeded to print the most pedantic and boring <laughs> track in support of the revolution for a population that was largely illiterate, so unable to read what he'd written anyway. The British ended up putting him in jail for this. <laughs> you see, when the Americans fled Montreal, Meplet was unable to follow because of the quantity of printing supplies he had to bring with him. Having only Continental Script on him, he was unable to pay any of the locals to help load and carry his supplies. 
So he was forced to stay in Montreal. After keeping him in jail for a while and judging him to have become harmless, the British released him only to see him publish a revolutionary newspaper. <laughs> Back in jail he went. When they let him out a second time, he resumed printing his newspaper, but this time as a commercial and literary publication. Originally entirely in French, it became bilingual and eventually entirely English. It is still published to this day. Montreal's only remaining English-language daily newspaper, The Gazette. That's awesome. That's a way fun story. This has been incredibly fascinating. This is awesome. I think we could probably go on forever. But I'm just if somebody were to go to Montreal today and stop in at the Chateau, what would they find? Uh, they, they would find, if they're Americans or Canadians, they would find a lot that would seem familiar. The building is slightly bigger than it was in Hamze's day. His daughter had sold the building to the fur trade company, and after a fire that appears to have taken out parts of the roof and the attic, the fur trade company made repairs that lowered the roof line, shortening the building by one floor. But they also expanded the building on one side and toward the rear, making the building's footprint larger than the house in which Ramsey had lived. There are also a couple of towers that were added in 1903 by a poor, misguided soul. <laughs> After all, what is a chateau, which is French for castle, without towers? The museum's permanent exhibition is on the history of Montreal, and by extension, the history of the province of Quebec, Canada, and bits and pieces of the United States, where our histories overlap. This takes up most of the ground floor and the basement. There are two rooms dedicated to temporary exhibitions on the ground floor, and in warm weather, there's a magnificent garden round the back. A garden that echoes those that were to be found everywhere in colonial Montreal, including in Governor Claude de Ramsay's own yard. Though, sad to say, the museum's garden covers only one-sixth the area of Claude de Ramsay's vast original garden. Does the chateau offer... You know, guided tours, special events? While audiovisual stations and on-site iPads make it possible to have self-guided tours of the museum, the Chateau Ramsay does indeed have guided tours. In fact, I've been a guide there for over 22 years. There are public tours in both English and French offered on weekends, all year round, and every day of the week in summer. The museum, or parts thereof, including the garden, can be rented for special events such as corporate gatherings, weddings, and the like. And children's birthday parties can also be had there with costumed animators guiding the kids through activities. We'll have to get Bryce a birthday party up there. (laughs) Our producer Mike. Well, there you go. He's got a four-year-old. I'm sure he'd be all about costume guys at the Chateau Ramsay. I'm sure that's in the French-Canadian legacy budget. We should be able to handle that, no problem. Now... (laughs) This has been awesome. I cannot thank you enough for joining the show. If somebody wants to get more information, where should we send them? Place to go is the museum's website, chateauramsay.qc.ca. That's C-H-A-T-E-A-U-R-A-M-E-Z-A-Y.qc.ca. And when I say Z, I mean the last letter of the alphabet. <laughs> Americans pronounce it Z, Canadians pronounce it correctly. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Bruno. This was cool. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure indeed. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair. 
to think that everything they love we simply do not share. But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.